0: Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you O afflicted one storm-tossed and not comforted behold I will set your stones in antimony and lay your found foundations with sapphires gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith, who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. So ever ever since uh, man was kicked out of the garden because of their sin. The one thing that has characterized us is that we have been trying to manufacture our own salvation. We've been trying to do it our own way. And when I say manufacture, you might say, what do you mean by that? And what I mean by that is we've been trying to get, 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 uh, to get for ourselves the benefits of joy, peace, happiness, love, all these things. We've been trying to get the benefits of God our own way. That's what I mean by trying to manufacture our own salvation. And we've been pursuing it our own way independently of God. And the problem is, as you already probably know, is that it never works that way. It will always, always, always fail. Trying to find our salvation our own way is the very essence of sin and will always fail. It is impossible to find any good thing outside of God. And all we end up achieving as we pursue the benefits of God without God, the only thing we end up achieving is death and destruction. I was thinking it's kind of like someone trying to get somewhere on a treadmill. But it's even worse than that. You're not only not getting somewhere, but you're destroying yourself and everything else. And I think this is one reason why most songs from the secular world have this sad darkness that characterizes them. Because there is this inescapable awareness of the frustration that characterizes this life, isn't there? If you, if you really looked at the songs that are out there that are popular, you would find that most of them, I believe, are sad. Most songs deal with drugs, Failed relationships. Real stuff of this life. A moment of happiness maybe. With a long hangover. And I think the reason that fake songs are not that popular today. Are because we know they're fake. We know they're not real. People know that there's not much to celebrate in this life. Last week, we looked at how God single-handedly accomplished salvation for us. And He has worked Himself to to bring us back into fellowship with God. He has restored our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We saw this in chapter 52, verses 13 through 53. Through chapter 53, sorry. Sorry. So that's what God does. He restores us to himself. He brings us back into a favorable relationship with God. He brings us back to himself. And only when we are restored with God can we say we are truly alive. We are truly living. Otherwise we are dead. Do you remember how God accomplishes this salvation? We looked at how we were sinners. Sinners. We are all sinners. We are all in rebellion. I was wondering who was that. I think it's me. <laughs> I was wondering who was who. Wh- what happened was man is in rebellion against God, right? Man sinned against the living God. We are all sinners, and either you have to pay for your sin in rebellion, or someone else has to pay for it. And the only one who is qualified and willing to be a substitute for you. There's only one. No one else can substitute for you. No one else can take that punishment that you deserve to pay. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ, the servant of the last chapter. Through through faith and His work can we be restored into fellowship with God and be brought, brought into a right relationship with the living God. He is our only hope. And although we we will taste the benefits today, one day we will experience the fullness of what Christ has accomplished for us. And we long for that day. And this chapter we're looking at today is about the effects of what the servant has accomplished. It's about how God reverses our fortunes through the work of the servant and how we are to respond to that work. What is the right response? How should we respond to the work of the servant? What effect has he brought to us? And that's what this chapter is all about. Chapter 55, the next chapter, continues a similar thought, but it tells us it invites us to enter into the servant's work and receive his benefits. So what we see today is the right response to the servant's work. What he has accomplished for us is to sing a song of praise to God. That's what should characterize us. That is what faith looks like. Faith looks like singing praise to God. And our singing should be very distinct from this world, shouldn't it? This world that is broken and destroyed and everyone knows it. Our song should be very different. It should be one with passion. And it should have a different, distinct sound to it. And distinct words to it. And it should be a song of praise to God. So why should you sing? Because even though you are barren, and here's the reversal, God promises to give you countless children to make you fruitful. Now, this is kind of strange as we look at the first verse here. Those who are presently without children are being called to sing with joy as if they had an abundance of children. Notice, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, You who have not been in labor. Now, God's people are described as being barren, right? Without children. And so we might wonder, in what way were God's people barren? Because clearly, He's not talking about physical children here. The barrenness is not physical children, but it doesn't tell you exactly what it means by being barren, right? So we kind of have to understand what they're saying ourselves. And I think we have very good reason to give a few answers to what it means to be barren. You see, they failed to bear fruit to God in any way. They failed to reflect God's image. They failed to spread the knowledge of God to all the nations. They failed to bless the world by bringing salvation to the world. And so you can see in what sense they were truly a barren people. And we can see the barrenness in that there was only a remnant left. In fact, when Jesus left and ascended to the Father, there were only 130 that remained in the upper room. She was barren in every way. But unlike physical barrenness, she was not innocent, was she? She was barren because of her disobedience to God. She was barren because of her idolatry and her failure to worship God in truth. And so she was responsible for her barrenness. And as we read these words in the way God is describing her, we need to understand how barrenness would have been understood in the day. You see, barrenness can be one of the hardest things for anyone to deal with today. It can be a terrible burden to bear. But it would have been even worse in the Old Testament times. To have no child was thought to have the worst curse you can possibly have on yourself. The presence or absence of children was often associated with the presence or absence of God's favor. Although that was often not true. So what is God calling his barren people to do? Well, he's calling them to sing. He's calling them to shout with joy. He's calling them to celebrate. And to call a barren person to do this would sound like a cruel joke, wouldn't it? It would, it would sound like the most insensitive thing you could possibly do. Who would ever call for a barren woman to shout and sing for joy? It makes no sense. Someone described it like this. It's kind of like going to a funeral and being in some start dancing and rejoicing and singing. It makes absolutely no sense. But here there's a good reason why they're being called to do this. And the good reason is because God is going to give her numerous children. Notice what it says here. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now this is amazing abundance of children. This this is more than the one who is married. This is numerous children that God is promising to her. This is an incredible surprise, an incredible change of fortune, right? Paul quotes from this in Galatians 4, verse 27, which we don't have time to go over. But I I, I welcome you and encourage you to look at that passage in light of what it says here. So to help communicate, express. By enlarging the tent, prepare for more children. We see that in verse 2 through 3. And a tent would have been something very familiar with the people that this was written to. Because they would have spent 40 years traveling through the wilderness in tents, living in tents. And some uh, apparently did still live in tents. <laughs> and uh, apparently the woman was responsible for both erecting and maintaining the family tent. And so the, the words here and the calling here is appropriate, right? Right? The point is that the barren woman is to have so many children that she will have to increase the size of her tent that they are living in. It will become so many children that they will have to increase it to the right, to the left, on all angles and on all sides east, west, south, and north. <laughs> Every part of it will have to be increased, increased generously. Increase lavishly, don't hold back, spread in every direction, even the nations will be incorporated into this tent. When I was reading this, I was thinking of uh, my brother and how he has eight children, or not eight children, he has six children, but that makes a family of eight. And so they, they have to buy a different type of car than most of us would have to buy, right? Right? They have to get a bigger car. Or also, I was thinking of maybe Dave Langevin coming in here before the service and adding a bunch of chairs, right? And saying, God is going to fill those chairs. And I'm like, why are you doing this? (laughs) You know? It's saying here that that she is going to have so many children, she better start right now increasing the size of her tent. Because it's going to get so big. So where are all these children coming from? Well, we know where all the children are coming from. There's only one place that these children can come from. These children are coming from the servant. This is the work of the servant that is bringing forth these children. Only he could have done it. And he is the one who's going to bring forth the children. Now, for anyone to respond to this call to sing would have required faith, wouldn't it? I mean, you think about it. None of these people would have really seen the fulfillment of this in those in that day. They wouldn't have seen the fulfillment of all the children coming in. Even by the time they died, they would have seen a shadow of it when they came back to Jerusalem, but that was merely a shadow. There weren't actually that many that returned. And so they were, would have had to rejoice in faith, looking forward to the promises of God being fulfilled with the promise of God fulfilled in the return of the exiles as, as confirmation and as a reminder that God does fulfill His promises, right? But for us, we have seen this being fulfilled, haven't we? We have seen this being fulfilled at Pentecost, when all the Jews from all around the world came together, right? And, 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 and rejoiced and sang this song of praise to God. And then as they scattered out and spread out, as the Gentiles were brought into the kingdom of God, as many children, one after another, came into this tent and we saw it flourishing. We have seen this promise being fulfilled, and we see it all around us as people become children of God. On May 30th, 1792, William Carey preached from Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3, in what is called one of the most influential sermons in the history of missions. I love the confirmation I'm getting. Thank you. <laughs> No, seriously, I love the noise of the babies. Andrew Davis said this sermon, in his sermon, uh, said of the sermon, Carey argued that this text refers to spreading the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. His so-called deathless sermon had two exhortations. First, expect great things from God. And second, attempt great things for God. And this slogan helped launch the modern missionary movement. And so, what I want to encourage you to do is whenever you see children of God being born, whenever you see people embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and repenting, or whenever you meet someone who's a believer, I want you to sing. I want you to praise God because this is the result of the work of the the servant. And it's being fulfilled all around us, and it should cause us to rejoice. Fruit is born because of the servant. He is the one Who brings forth fruit. So, why should you sing? Because even though you were forsaken by God, and here's the reversal again now you are restored to God and completely loved by God. You can see the reversal in verse 4 Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. So, once again, you add, and these pictures aren't necessarily separate from each other. You know, they're supposed to be understood together. They're all kind of building on each other to help us get a picture of the people that God has abundantly transformed and reversed their situation. And so here they are, a childless, fruitless woman who is also abandoned by her husband. This is a terrible condition. This is a fearful condition. This is a shameful condition. An unimaginably terrible condition. But God says he's going to reverse it. She will no longer be ashamed or confounded or disgraced. She will, in fact, forget all of it. She will forget it all. There will be nothing to be ashamed of anymore or to fear. So what is the reason for this? What is the reason she can rejoice? The reason is not merely that her husband is returning to her. But also... Who the husband is who is returning to her. And notice the emphasis here on who the husband is. It is emphasized with, with, uh, with title after title after title. Because you can't just give one title that explains who her husband is. That should cause her to rejoice. He is the maker of the whole earth. He knows and cares for her like no one else could. He has the ability to change her As only the maker would be able to do. He is the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the all-powerful one. That's what the Lord of hosts means, right? In verse 5 there. He is able to protect her from all danger. I mean, imagine the comfort and the peace of having the Lord of hosts as your husband. The maker as your husband. The one who has unlimited power over everything. And the one who truly can care for you as a creator would care for his creation. He is the Holy One of Israel, the transcendent, separate, unique one who stands apart from all others. Sorry, honey. (laughs) This is a real husband, right? He is her redeemer. The title Redeemer reminds us of Ruth, right? She was childless. A foreigner, a widow, absolutely nothing was going her way that could possibly go her way. She was in a hopeless, humiliated position, one as much as you could possibly be in. And remember that Boaz falls in love with her. He is able to be her redeemer. And so her fortunes suddenly are completely reversed. And this is exactly what God does, doesn't he? He redeems us. When we were in the very same hopeless condition as the woman is in. Such reversal of fortunes is what God does. That's his nature. This is what he loves to do. He is in the business of reversing. He is in the business of delivering. He is in the business of saving. He loves to save and to deliver. God's name tells us what he is all about and what he loves to do. What a great husband we have. We could not be in a better position than being married to God. So why then did God reject her? And why is he now taking her back? Well God wants to explain to us what happened. And I think he wants us to do this so that we can understand who God is. We can understand something about the character of God. We can understand something about the heart of God. Something that is often very hard for us to understand about God. His compassion. And so God gives us this complicated story of his relationship with his people. And it really is compl- complicated if you read verses 6 through 8. But have you noticed how sin destroys everything? Have you noticed how sin makes everything messy? My life is messy because of sin. Your life is messy because of sin. Your marriage is messy because of sin. My marriage is messy because of sin. All of Our lives are messy. This church is messy because of sin. It affects everything, and so should it be. Our lives will continuously be somewhat of a mess until this age is over. We will never be completely rid of the mess. So if you're looking for a church that doesn't have messes in it, you'll never find one. You'll bring it with you wherever you go. There's one thing I've learned from being a pastor is that there is no arriving There is no simple formulas. The church is always going to be a little messy, and sometimes a lot messy. (laughs) Because your pastor is messy, because you are messy, and because everyone is messy. (laughs) We will always need to depend on God, and we'll be always working through messes. So what did God do in response to her sin? Because of her unfaithfulness and unbelief, he withdrew his gaze from her. Notice what God does in his wrath. He responded with righteous ra- rage and with great anger. And he says, For a moment I withdrew my gaze from you. And a moment apparently is 70 years to God. The exile, right? So he removed his gaze from her. And all of this messiness, all that she went through, was her own fault. And I want us to think for a second what does God do when he gets angry? What's his response? You know, in one sense, you can look at the cruelties they experienced by the Babylonians and say, that's God's anger, right? Well, sort of, that's a, it's kind of the consequence of his anger. That was a, a symptom of his anger, you might say. Or how about the siege and destruction they faced, which would have been incredible, awful anger from God expressed to them. But there's a deeper and more important issue here. The absence of of the favor of God, the, the looking away of God's face. That's what God's anger is at His very essence. All these other things happened as a symptom because God refused to look at her with favor. The root of the issue was the turning away of God's favor. and I want us as a church to understand what is really the issue here. This tells us what salvation really is. Salvation is a restoration into the favor of God. Favor is be, uh, salvation is being restored into God's favor. Nothing less and nothing more. Just as much as the wrath and anger of God is the removal of His favor from us. Maybe you've witnessed... Or have been a part of a marriage relationship that looked impossible to fix. It was so messed up. There was nothing that could be done. It needed a God-sized fixing. And at this time, God has the right and the power to do what he wants with her, right? But what does he do? What does it say he does here? And we need to hear this. God has compassion for her. And he calls her back to himself. He is no longer angry with her. His anger has ended. And he does not want to leave her in the condition that she deserves. Instead, God calls her back. And we see the greatness of God's love and his compassion. What we see here is a compassion that is loyal, covenantal, committed. It's a love that is a covenantal love for his people. His words are with great compassion. And actually notice it says great compassion here. And what that means is that means compassion, plural, which I think is a way of saying that he is overflowing with compassion. God is overflowing with it. He looks at her with compassion. So it's not like God is reservingly loving her. It's not like God is thinking, well, maybe I'll love her a little. It's not like God is somehow holding back at all. He wants to love her. He loves to have compassion on her. He wants to deliver her. And his love is expressed in grace, mercy, kindness, and unfailing love. And that is God's attitude towards every one of his children. He loves to have compassion on you. And he places his everlasting love upon her. This is a love that can never end. This is a love that can never be destroyed. This is a love that can never falter. It's unconditional, covenantal love reserved for his children who are under his favor. So, why does God do this? Because He delights to show love. Because He chooses to have compassion. You know, God loves to show how His grace and compassion and love is greater than the messes we can make. He loves to show that His love is greater than our love. And He says elsewhere, He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. He chooses to have mercy. And he chooses to give grace. And notice right here we see how God's love is different than ours. You know, our loves, our loves, is so limited because we hold grudges. We don't give it all. We hold back a little bit. We want a little piece of the flesh, don't we, in response. But God holds no resentment. Kind of like the prodigal son, you know, as someone said, he doesn't give him five lashes just to make sure for good measure. God doesn't work that way. Now this doesn't mean God is not going to discipline you because he will. If you're his child, he will discipline you. And you can certainly bring the fatherly displeasure upon yourself. But God will never be judicially angry at you ever again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. And God does not simply say, I won't punish you. You know, like being gracious to my son, saying, I won't punish you this time. God lavishly gives you a pizza party. God brings you to the store and says, help yourself to whatever you want. He pours out his grace and his mercy on you. Imagine that. (laughs) We see this in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7. You can look at that yourself. So that in the coming ages, he might show the, the, the kindness of his grace to you. Amazing, amazing thought. And so all of God's favor comes through the new covenant that was accomplished through the shedding of his blood. If you're outside of God's favor, on the other hand, the Bible says that the judicial wrath of God presently hangs over your head. Nothing good belongs to you and your only hope is to flee for safety at this moment. Don't delay. Flee to Christ for safety before it's too late. He is your only hope that you have. There is no hope outside of him. God's commitment to loving his people in some ways is like the commitment he made after the flood. In both cases, he said, my anger was over. It has been spent. And what image could convey the security and certainty of his love more than the mountains? You know, when you think of something secure, what do you think of? Well, you, you might think of the mountains. Imagine going to bed one night and waking up and the mountains was moved. Mount Washington is in a different location. You know, you know that, that just couldn't happen. That's impossible. Right? But it says here that God's love is more secure than even the mountains. Even if the mountains were moved, you can be sure that God's love would never fail for you. What an amazing thought. Verse 10 is an incredibly comforting verse. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So why should you sing? Because even though you were like a destroyed and defeated city, and here is the reversal, God will restore you into a beautiful, stable, and indestructible city. As you've noticed, all these reversals are similar, aren't they? In some ways, they connect and intersect with each other. And the great reversal is in verse 7. God's people were storm-tossed, 11, sorry. God's people were storm-tossed, like a ship at sea, without any stability. Now look at the incredible contrast that God promises to do. He will build their foundations of precious stones, replace the insecurity with firmness and stability. They will be beautified and glorious. Her despair will be replaced with endless resources and blessings from God. And the reversal far exceeds the beauty that they formerly had. You know, the same imagery can be found in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem. And it's interesting that it says it's as if a bride is coming out of heaven. Right? And so you can see the connection between the bride, the woman, the adornment, uh, or the woman who was abandoned. And there's a connection between the city. You know, there's a connection here. All these things work together. They're separate but similar in some ways. So God promises here stability, and this stability only comes through being taught by the Lord. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Incredible stability, and stability only comes through the Word of God. If we are to live as stable people, it must come through our understanding of the Word of God, for only there can we have a relationship with God, and only there can we find peace with God. Only there can we live as a peaceful people. Because our relationship with God is restored. We are no longer enemies of God. And our relationship with each other is being restored as we are right with God. And so here in this city, there will be perfect peace. Because we are taught by the Lord. What stability, what security. And by the way, Jeremiah 31 verse 31 through 34 talks about the new covenant in this very language. It's the very language of the new covenant. God also promises her stability Of being founded in righteousness. You know, if you want to be stable, you must be founded and established in righteousness. There is no stability apart from righteousness. You remove righteousness and you are as unstable as you could possibly be. It's not through fixing the political systems, primarily. It's not through gaining wealth. But it's through righteousness that we are a stable people. We must be founded on righteousness. Righteousness. If we're to have any stability. And where does righteousness come from? Righteousness, along with peace, comes only through the work of the servant. He is the one who gives us a righteousness that is alien, that is not our own, that comes through Christ. And he is the one who is making us into a righteous people at the same time. With all this security, how then can we arm ourselves against the fear that is all around us in our lives? And it says here that we arm ourselves by understanding the complete sovereignty of God over his creation. You know, this will put a death to all fear if we understand this. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall have fruit every tongue that rise against you in judgment. What is there to fear if our God... Is our creator. You see, God is the one who created that person who uses the weapon. God is the one who created the materials for that weapon. God is the one who created the blacksmith who makes that weapon. God is saying, I am completely sovereign over everything. There is absolutely nothing to fear. That weapon is going to ultimately fulfill my purpose. That person who's making that weapon cannot go outside of my purposes for them. Therefore, why in the world would we ever fear? What is there in in, in the whole universe that could possibly cause us to fear? If God is fulfilling his purposes as the creator through everything. And we as a church need to understand the security that should be ours if we have any understanding of who our God is. This means you don't need to fear political upheavals, diseases, or anything. Nothing against you shall succeed. And this means you might be hurt in this life, but you will not be destroyed. And even the hurt that comes against you will be used for your good and for God's glory. What an amazing thought. There is no reason to fear because God promises to finally vindicate his people. God will vindicate his people. Even though it might not appear like it, even though the world might seem to be in chaos, and we might struggle with with diseases and sicknesses and and governments, we can stand secure in the fact that God is going to vindicate his people, and everything is fulfilling his purposes. So what is God seeking from us today? What is God after? Is God after converts? Well, what did Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4 verse 24? Listen to these words. The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Jesus did not say that the Father was after converts, although it's true, right? He said there, the Father is seeking worshipers. And there's really not much of a difference there, is there? Every true believer will be a worshiper of God, And we need to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, just as a baby cries out, so the life of faith is worship. When we have faith in our hearts, it will come out of us as worship and praise to God. We will sing songs to God. You cannot have faith and not have it mingled and express itself in some kind of praise. Because that's what faith looks like. It looks like worship. When we see God... When you understand that you've been delivered from God's judgment and you believe it. And you understand that you are hopeless and now God has saved you. The result is praise and worship to God. Hannah is one of the best examples of this in 1 Samuel 1-2. through She was barren, had no children. She did the right thing. She cries out to God in her anguish. The Lord hears her cry, and what did she do? What what was her response? She sang. (laughs) She praised God. She rejoiced. And I'm not going to go through it, although I really want to. But the theme of her song is how God brings about reversals. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what we're looking at here. God brings about reversals. He's the great Redeemer. He's the great Savior. And nothing could hold her back. Read that song. A right response if. You're alive is to rejoice and praise God and to sing. The gospel is what creates laughter, singing, and rejoicing. John Calvin said it this way, The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. <laughs> sometimes you come unhappy, sometimes you come happy. And it's the gospel that cheers us up. Philip Brecken wrote this, the test of a church's faith is not only the wording in its creed, but also the gladness in its worship. If we aren't going to hell anymore, if we stand to inherit every blessing almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness, because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, then what can? If you have forgotten this song, then ask God to bring it back. You and I need to see and to savor savor our Savior again. We need to look at him in faith and respond as Hannah did. We need to give God the praise. Let's do his name. Let's pray. Dear Father, you saved us to worship you. You saved us to proclaim your excellent greatness. And Lord, we have every reason to praise you. You have had compassion on us. When we had no worthy reason to be loved. Lord, there was nothing in us compelling you to love us. You loved us of your own free will. Graciously, kindly, mercifully, forgivingly. Lord, you poured out your compassion on us. You called us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace today. Lord, we thank you that you had compassion on us. And God, I pray that you would open up our hearts. Give us a new song to sing. Give us new praise to to rejoice and to sing to you about, Lord. May, May you put a new song in our hearts, Lord. And Lord, I pray that this week everyone who's around us would see that there is something different about us. I pray that the miracle of God of God's salvation would be heard through our lives this week. Lord, do this work in us. Cause us to sing again and louder than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.